0: Heavenly Father, it's a, a, a distinct gift that we could gather, and yet, because we do it so frequently, sometimes we, we miss out on how wonderful this is. So much concentrated display of who you are, because these are image bearers, divinely made, reflecting your creativity, your glory, your character. And I pray that each person here, however they came in, whether they are near to Christ, far from Christ, indifferent to Christ, in love with Christ, would know that they're here by your design. Know that they are valued, that they are custom made by you. God, as we come to your word in an area of money, which can get weird for us, I pray that it wouldn't. That your grace, your kindness, your instruction, everything you say in every area of life, including this one, is always for our flourishing. And so might we be able to, to receive your word through that lens? And God, what every person in this room needs most, whether near or far from you, is we need, we, we, we need to see a, see a greater vision of Christ, who he is, all he's done, that we might leave this place more impressed with him. So beyond all the things that we ask that you do, and we do ask for so many things. We ask that you would lift Jesus high and that we would leave this place more sure, more certain, more impressed, more in love, more convinced on all that He is and all that He's done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. About a month ago or so, I had jury duty. I never had jury duty before, Um, and so I went down to the courthouse, was in a room with a couple hundred other people, and most of them got hived off into various court cases, and then the ones that were left, there's probably like 50 or 60 of us or so, and they said, hey, you all have been selected to be part of a jury selection process for a criminal court case. and so that was an interesting, kind of going through this process and, and going then eventually they said, come back in a few hours and we're going to bring you into a courtroom and you're going to go through a, a jury selection process. And I was actually really, uh, strangely, you know, was, I was strangely, it was strangely worshipful actually. It was really weird to, to watch how slow, it was really slow, very like tedious, very thoughtful, but the whole point was to try to bring justice to all parties involved as best as they could. And so I was actually really impressed with the judge, really impressed with the defense attorney and the, the prosecutor. I was actually really impressed with fellow jurors who, who know, I don't know, most of the people in that room definitely did not want to be there, but most people were like, this is an important part of having a government by the people and of the people and for the people. And and then one of the things that happened through the proceedings, because what they're doing is they're trying to whittle it down to who are the people that we're actually going to have beyond the juror. And so most people, almost all the people, were, were, were really good about trying to engage some very invasive questions, honestly, because what the lawyers are trying to do is to figure out your biases. And so in this, and one of the things that I appreciated in this room was that the judge and the lawyers were really clear, you all are biased. Every single one of you, without fail. It was like, it was a weird twilight zone because in our world, it feels like sometimes we disregard bias, but they're like, no, you're all biased. No matter what you do, you are going to come to the table with biases. The question is, can you put your biases aside enough to give justice in this case? And almost everybody said yes. There was a few that couldn't, and then they would say, okay, juror number 37, thank you for your service, you're dismissed. And what has stunned me is all you had to say is, I'm, I'm biased and I will be biased, and they would like, dismiss you. And the fact that most people didn't, <laughs> like, that was actually, it's like, gave me hope for humanity. It truly did. My hope today is we're going to take up this, this key question. Are Christians required to tithe? And I'm going to unpack that a little bit, but are Christians required to tithe? And we all come with biases to our answers there. For some in this room, the answer for you is really easy. It's an easy yes. It's an easy no. For some in this room, you've never really thought about it. For some in this room, you don't want to think about it. And so as we go into this text and this sermon, we are bringing our biases. But I hope, I pray, that what we want most is to bring God's word into our perspectives that we can answer this question as biblically as the Spirit would allow us. Specifically, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a serious question from sincere Christians. Sincere Christians ask this question, and sincere Christians come up with different answers. So let's just recognize that on the front end. But it's a a serious question from sincere Christians. I'm going to do a case for and a case against tithing. So we'll try to combine both of those. And then I'm going to put my vote out there. I'll say this is what I believe. So, a serious question for sincere Christians, a case for and a case against tithing, and what I believe the Bible says about the requirement to tithe. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, I'd love to invite you to stand with me. And I will be honest with you, this is a hard-hitting text. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed... From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Feel free to grab a seat. We're going to get into the the question of, of tithing Um, but we need to impact this passage a bit. Malachi, by all accounts, is a very hard-hitting book. It's four chapters of a number of different... Accusations. Malachi, um, one of God's prophets, after what was known as the exile, this is after God's people had rebelled, their temple was destroyed, their city was ransacked, they'd been carried off into Babylon, they're finally back now in the land that God had promised to give them. And they were relatively orthodox. They, they had relatively right belief, but really they were, there was a, a spiritual malaise. There was an apathy to their expression of faith. And one of those areas of indifference was in their contributions to the temple, they're bringing in their ties and their offerings. Malachi is built around kind of this six-fold wake-up call to God's church at that time. The text we just read is the fifth one. It starts with what I would suggest to you is sobering, surprising, and I think even a scary um, sort of insight. Um, it's the only place in the Bible where my name is found, Rob. Um, <laughs> I was just <laughs> all the Rob's in the room. Yeah. Thanks, mom. We can rob God. Wow. Like, just let that settle on you for a sec. That's a, that's a, that's a stunning insight. Did you allow Himself to be defrauded in this way? R.C. Sproul, out of a blog post called Will Man Rob God, said recently I read an article that gave an astonishing statistic that I find difficult to believe is accurate. It declared that of all of the people in America who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, and, and there, the way he's using that term is people that believe the authority of the Bible, they believe the necessity of Jesus, they believe he died and rose from the dead. You don't attach it to whatever in our culture we have biases to attach it to. That's, he's just saying people that actually believe the Bible. Only 4% of them return a tithe to God. If that statistic is accurate, it means that 96% of professing evangelical Christians regularly, systematically, habitually, and impenitently or unrepentantly rob God of what belongs to him. It also means that 96% of us who are for this reason exposing ourselves to a divine curse upon our lives, whether this percentage is accurate, one thing is certain, it is clear that the overwhelming majority of professing evangelical Christians do not tithe. Now, we're we're picking up the question, so let me just give you a little caution. I got these little caution markers. It says caution in bold letters on my outline. Hold on. I'm reading that I'm not answering the question that Christians are required to tithe. I'm not saying we aren't. I'm not saying we are. I'm just giving you an observation that based on practice, most Christians have already given their answer. That's all, that's all I'm trying to observe, okay? We can rob God in some way. Let me give you a second observation. I'm gonna try to combine two thoughts here from this Malachi text. We can't outsmart God and we can't outgive God. We can't outsmart him, we can't outgive him. Like all of God's word, even the parts that accuse us, they're not meant to condemn us. They're they're meant to confront us and challenge us and change us, both for our flourishing and for God's glory. So in this text, he's saying, like, you're robbing me. You're not arranging your lives around the priorities in which I've given you, which I'm to be at the center. And and part of your giving and bringing in the tithe was to support the the, the system of of spiritual vibrancy in the, the life of God's people. And he goes, that's why your crops are failing. You go to a, a sister book, the book of Haggai, and it talks about you continue to make money, but you put it in money bags, in wallets, that, or, or cryptocurrency, or whatever, that, ha, that has holes and ways of being pilfered, and you keep wondering, why does that happen? And God's like, because you're not putting me first. You're not architecting your financial decisions around my biblical priorities and my biblical plan. If you are here last week, we just said the biblical pattern, the overarching pattern is this, in this order, give, save, spend. Honor the Lord with your first fruits of your wealth, whatever that is. Honor the Lord. And he's saying, because you're not doing that to his church through Malachi, he's saying, that's why you're, that's why the destroyer's coming in and wrecking your crops. That's why you don't ever have enough. You can't outsmart God. You can't architect your finances in such a way that you're gonna trump his principles. But then there's this beautiful partnering with this. You also can't outgive God. This text is pointing to both of these. There's this test that's given me. God is, like, that's a, that's a stunning, we can rob, this text, is, these verses are full of surprising things. We can rob God? And then he says, test me? Put me to the test. Bring in the tithe. Bring in the full tithe to the storehouse. I'll unpack what that all is here in just a second. But bring in the full tithe to the storehouse and see. See what I'm going to do. He, he says this here in, in verse 10. Put me to the test, says the Lord Host, if I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'm not just saying God just provides the bare minimum. Actually, this is this whole, the kind of cliche statement, but you can't outgive God. I love the way Eric Ortland in his commentary on Malachi says that until there is no more need, that little phrase means something stronger. It actually means until there is a wearing out of sufficiency. The Lord is promising an overwhelming blessing more than the people are able to use. When Israel is asked to give back a fraction of what was never truly theirs, God responds with everything he has. God's not, we said this last week, God doesn't need your money. It's, God, God wants our hearts. And part of the design of giving is to get more of our, our hearts. And he's saying it's not, let me, let me try to illustrate this way. And I can't prove and I can't disprove this, but in 30 years of of. of of tithing in 19 years as a pastor in my own life and in the life of other believers, I've never seen anyone go bankrupt by tithing. I've never seen it. I think it's a a way that a text like this works out. It says, bring in honor me. I've never seen anyone go bankrupt in tithing. In fact, I've seen the opposite. In my experience, those who do tithe are often the most financially organized. Now, I'm not saying, okay, I put $10 in and God kicks a hundred bucks out. Well, it's so crass. Like, that's not where we're going with this. But those who organize their lives around God's financial principles of honoring honoring him first and being thoughtful in how we architect our budgets, I'm just telling you, in 20 years of being a pastor, I've I've yet to see somebody go bankrupt. And and those are the people that typically fight less about money, have the the least amount of friction around money, feel least consumed by greed, have taken on the least amount of, of foolish debt, because they're organizing their lives around this principle. They've taken the challenge to test God to heart, and God has proved faithful time and time again. And caution, okay, caution. Now it says caution again. In my notes, I am not arguing the Bible commands Christians to tithe. I'm just making an observation about those who do. Okay, give me one more um, insight from this text. It comes out of verse 12. Our giving and God's glory and the fame of Jesus amongst the nations is inextricably tied to our giving. Let me, let me read the text. And then, verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. It says, when you honor me in this way, as your, as your, your crops bear fruit, as, as your lives flourish, as you're not enslaved to debt, as you, as you give your money away to say that, that God is, is worth it, the nations look in and they see it. They see it. You know, for me, the the most surprising effect of this series actually hasn't had to do with money. It actually has to do with the new creation. I've been surprised all this talk we've been doing, and partly we wanted to do a series this long on money and possessions to kind of like, let's talk so much about money and possessions to take the awkward out of it. Let's just, get, let's just talk like every other area of our discipleship. And so as we've talked so much about it, what it's done is it's actually made the new creation more real because I started going like, as Jesus says, like where your treasure is there, your heart is also. I've thought a lot about where my treasure is, which means my heart has been going after it. And I, I kind of came to this, this understanding of like, if what God says is not real, if the trajectory of the Bible and the trajectory of creation is not a new kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth coming, then giving anything to the cause of Christ is, is foolish. But if it's real, oh, it's so wise, and, 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 and it just made me dream and imagine and think because I've been so cued in, clued in, focused in. It's just had the effect of making Jesus' words more true. Those around us, they, they have a front row seat to our giving, it's the nations around Israel. They had a front row seat to, to how they worship their God. My kids do. My kids get to look at what my wife and I do, and they get to see do we actually really believe that this is just a blip on the way we spend and the way we steward our resources? And oh, I wish you were here for every week. I wish I, wish I remembered what I said every week. So I'm with you. But God gives us good things to enjoy. So this isn't just give everything, but it's the proper portions and ratios and rhythms and patterns. Our kids get to see that. Our families get to see that. Our our, our non-Christian friends get to see that. And they can sniff it out. They can sniff out, oh, yes, I'm all about Jesus. I'm all about the kingdom to, to come. I'm all about that. But when we keep investing our lives as if this is the only world, what we're saying is I'm not so sure I believe in the one to come. We can rob God. We can't outsmart him. And we can't outgive him. And our giving is tied up, not just to our own hearts, but God's fame amongst all peoples. All right, let's get to the question. Malachi 3, it's a serious text. The, the, the question really, and I would say from sincere hearts, people that are going like, I really want to know what God is, in, is asking me to do. Are Christians required to tithe? There's a lot in that. The tithe, literally, if you've ever heard the word tithe, it literally in Hebrew just means 10. It means to give 10. To give 10 of whatever, you got 100 or something, you give 10. You have 10%, 10, 10, you know, you got 100 peppercorns, you give 10 peppercorns. You know, I mean, it's that, like the idea is you give God the first 10 of whatever you have. This word required means commanded. So like you could say, I don't think Christians are required to tithe, but you can still do it. So I'm saying, are Christians required to? That's the question we're trying to take up. It means you're commanded to, and if you're not doing it, you're breaking a command. I'm not saying the answer, Right? just laying out the question. I'm dancing. I'm dancing. (laughs) Turn tax man back on. Um, Storehouse. Bring in the full tithe to the storehouse. Now, this is an important part of this text. It's the temple system where people would bring it into the storehouse, talking the central place in Jerusalem to fund the priests, to fund the uh, the Levitical priesthood. This is how they they were employed is through the temple giving. It's how people were cared for within the nation of Israel. It was kind of the social network that actually provided for God's people at that time. Today, there's no singular temple. So most often when this question gets asked, I'm not saying it should get asked, but most often it gets asked this way is that there's, well, the local church now is what would be the storehouse then. So often it's, are Christians required to give 10% to their local church? Again, I'm not giving you the answer. I'm just giving you the question. Are Christians required then to give 10%? Well, do we mean gross income or net income? You start seeing how complicated this can get. Are Christians required to give 10% of their gross or net income to their local church? That's the question we're trying to take up today. I'm going to try to get to some answers. Um, D.A. Carson, and I hope you hear this. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, brilliant, brilliant person, in a 1999 Christianity Today kind of Q&A article He gives this answer to the question, very sincere question from a very sincere Christian. Are Christians required to tithe? His answer was this, a simple yes or no to this question would be horribly misleading. I love that answer, and you're going to see why in a minute. You probably already picked up on it if you looked at the sermon title on your programs. A simple yes or no to that question may be horribly misleading. Why? Well, I would suggest to you it's not as clear as we think. That's why. Let me, get, let me try to make it murky for you. Um, the tithe is commanded clearly in the Old Testament. Nobody debates that. No biblical scholar, no casual reader of the Bible would debate that, that the Bible is clearly commanded in the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible. It's never commanded in the New Testament, the last third of your Bibles. It's barely even mentioned. But tithing is also never rejected. So it's really a continuity discontinuity. Like what are the things that we take from all of God's word and put into our practice today? What are the things that we don't do anymore? For example, many people in this room enjoy bacon. Do you enjoy bacon? You should. It's the most glorious food product ever. But if we were following Old Testament law, we would not be eating bacon. So there's some things we do and some things we don't. It gets into really complicated questions. So tithing has never come in. It. It's also never Rejected, though, in the New Testament, even though it's barely mentioned. But here's a big one. Jesus commended tithing in Matthew chapter 23. He told people to tithe. He never dismissed it. He never rejected it. But here's the tricky part of this. He did it in the context of rebuking people. And he did it before the cross and the resurrection. He was fulfilling God's law that we now live under grace and not under what is known as the Mosaic covenant, the 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 the, the commands that were given through Moses. I know this gets complicated. I'm going to keep making it murky. Matthew 23, 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is the only place, except in Hebrews, that mentions back to the Old Testament. The only place in the New Testament that's contemporary place of Christ where he says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, you give 10 of the mint and the dill and the cumin. And you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he didn't say stop doing them. And go do just the weightier matters. But he also says it's not the most weighty stuff. So what do we do with that? He's commending it, but he's also tweaking it, and he's also in the context of a rebuke. You blind guys, straight out of net and swallowing a camel. All right. Let me give you first what everyone agrees on. Every, I would suggest to you, sincere Bible-reading Christian. Christians are for sure commanded to give generously and sacrificially. Can we, amen, anyone? Like, Like, I hope I don't have to prove that today. If I do, we probably got to have a different, we got to start somewhere else. So I would just say, every Christian that reads the Bible would say, we are commanded to give generously, invited, implored, compelled to give. Um, Everything belongs to God anyway. We steward what is truly his, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within them. 1 Chronicles 29 is probably my favorite chapter on giving in the Bible. I would invite you to go read it. It's a wonderful chapter. But verse 14 says this, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Christians are for sure commanded. Everything belongs to God already. Um, This is where our series started, just as by way of recap, storing up all your treasure here is foolish. That was Matthew chapter six. That was Christ's point in Matthew six. And then where we're going next week to end this series, cheerful, regular, sacrificial, Christ-inspired giving is the goal. We're gonna look at that out of 2 Corinthians nine. All right, let me make a case for and a case against. Out of everything that we agree on, case for, case against. And I'm saying a case, not the case. This is like blog post level defense of one position or the other. And because the stakes are so high, I hope this is a catalyst for those that have not truly sat and considered the question to go do some serious study, gather with other people and open the Word of God and investigate it. And really, truly, it is a blog-level defense because I took it from two blogs. The two blogs I took it for. (laughs) The two blogs I took it for, and I did this intentionally. We're going to put them in the loop this next week so you can read them. Um, But it was, Christians are required to tithe, And then seven reasons Christians are not required to tithe. That's your sermon title. I did that partly so you didn't get the program and then turn and leave. So you said, well, this, I don't know where he's going with this. Christians are required to tithe and seven reasons Christians are not required to tithe. I'm not even going to go through all seven, but let me give you the case four. Um, This is from William Barclay. The Bible commands Christians to tithe. Does the Bible command Christians to tithe? And if so, is the baseline 10% as expressed in the Old Testament? I believe the answer is yes. The tithe is essential for holiness, vital for the ongoing work of Christ's church, and required, there's that word, for receiving God's blessing. My argument in a nutshell is this. The requirement to tithe preceded the Mosaic law, so this is Moses, Ten Commandments, the Red Sea, all that, was codified and it was ceremonial aspects added and was affirmed by Jesus as binding on his Followers. We've referenced some of this already. Let me just give you his points really quickly. Preceded the Mosaic Law. That's out of Genesis 14, I believe, is the first place where the tithe comes up, and it's Abraham ties to a guy named Melchizedek. It's quoted in Hebrews as well. I was going to read the text. We'll move a little quicker, though. It's commanded and codified in the Mosaic Law. It's all over the place from Leviticus chapter 27 and on. It's constant. It's constant. It's commended by Jesus. We already talked about that out of Matthew twenty-three. These you should have done while also not neglecting the weightier matters of the law. So it's commended by Christ. So so this author is saying For him, And he he goes into more nuance, and this is probably a blog post based on a 1,000-page dissertation. I mean, so it's not out of a lack of study. It's just showing you the tip of an iceberg. But he's saying for those reasons, he would say we are required to tithe. Let me give you some reasons Christians are not required to tithe. I'm not going to do seven. I'll do a few of them. Thomas uh, Schneider uh, um, says this. Many think believers in Christ should tithe, defined as giving 10% of one's income. And many use the language of tithes and offerings in worship services. Others are equally convinced tithing is not required for believers. Which view is more faithful to God's word? And that's the question, isn't it? That's always what we care about. Or we hope to. This certainly isn't a matter over which believers should break fellowship. Love is far more important than our view on tithing. Still, I would argue tithing isn't required or even encouraged for believers in Jesus Christ but such a stance needs to be explained. And then he goes on to some reasons. He gives seven reasons. Let me just give you a, a quick little rundown of what some of these reasons are. Tithes, as we said, were brought into the storehouse and then they were given to the Levites and priests. But who are the Levites and priests today? So how do you, how do, you do that? Well, he, we're the priesthood of all believers. So who did the tithes and the offerings go to? It's just one of the questions he, he asks. The tithe was also, as I mentioned, was tied to the temple in Jerusalem and, and kind of a theocratic nation state of, called Israel. Well, that's like, we're the temple now, and there's all these local churches, and how do you bring into a central storehouse, and, and how does that work? What do you, where are you supposed to tithe now? When Jesus affirmed the tithe, Matthew 23, it was before the, the new covenant of God's grace was ratified in the cross and the resurrection, That Jesus was fulfilling all the Old Testament commands to a T that we might partake in his righteousness. And now we live under, not under law, but under grace. And then I'll give you one more. Nowhere is tithing mentioned when commands to give generously are found in the New Testament, which in many ways is an argument from silence. Like you're trying to assume why someone did that, but throughout the, the New Testament, there are commands to give, but it's never just clear tithe. It's be sacrificial and generous and cheerful and free and responsive to God's grace, but there's not a command to tithe. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, for example, illustrates this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. He said, oh, you're gonna, you take it off the top, you're putting something It's in proportion to what you have, but he doesn't use tithe, specifically 10. Okay. Case for, case against. Are Christians required to tithe? Okay, maybe we do a drum roll. Ready? I have no idea. (laughs) um, It's not that I have no idea, Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. If you pressed me, like, you have to vote. You have to say yes or no. Here's what I would say. I'm not 100%. I wouldn't say yes or no because I would give more words. I'm not 100% positive. And here's here's where I'm going to cast my vote. I do not believe Christians are required to tithe, and I think Christians should at least tithe. Is that like the most unsatisfying answer or satisfying answer you've ever heard in your entire life? I do not believe Christians are biblically commanded, required. Not saying they shouldn't. Required. And I think Christians should at least tithe. I think that should be the basement, not the ceiling. Alistair Begg picks this up in how Christians should understand tithing. It is true that the tithe is not explicitly commanded in the New Testament, but neither is it explicitly rejected. So while we are not offering tithes as a matter of obedience to Old Testament law, Neither should we simply ignore the principle. The idea of giving 10% could be a good starting point for Christians, but should we leave it at that? I love what Randy Alcorn says in the treasure principle, and this I would suggest is how it works out for many Christians that are faithful in this area over a lifetime. He says this, tithing is God's historical method to get his people on the path to giving. In that sense, it can serve as the gateway to the joy of true grace giving. Not just a box you check, but a habit you build in that produces increasing joy throughout life. All right, here's what my wife and I do. Um, We give 10% minimum to our local church. So when I say Christians are not required to tithe, and are Christians required to tithe through the local church? And like, no. And... Katie and I give 10% of our income to our local church. And then beyond that, we give to other kingdom causes. Not as much as we want, hopefully, less than we will in the future. But let me unpack this a bit more just to make it a little bit more revealing to you Um, 10% of gross or net we give 10%? Do we give 10% of our gross or our net? Historically, I wrote this down because I don't want to mess it up. For us, it's always been gross. It's been off, off the top, whatever it is, before taxes, before everything else. But over the last few years, I'd shifted, I would suggest to you, I drifted to somewhere between gross and net. And it came from genuine, sincere questions. And I'm not binding your conscience. This is, I'm, I'm trying to be as clear with you as I can. This is not a command. This is not an official position of the church that you're going to be put in church discipline. We encourage you to give and to give generously for your own good. But so it's like I went through this process. Is it gross? Is it net? I was like, well, well, should I tithe on my gross income even though some of my money is going into tax-deferred retirement accounts in which I'm going to give on after they grow? So am I like double tithing then? Like, should I tithe twice? And then the way our church um, works out medical um, premiums in in this church uh, because of the size of our staff and the exchange and all those things, what we do is we actually give a medical stipend to our staff, which actually I think works out better for most people. But do you tithe off of a medical stipend? I'm like, well, I wouldn't tithe on my medical premiums if I was getting medical care. So it it seemed kind of weird to tithe on my medical premiums. And so through this series, what I realized is like... I should just tithe on it all. So that's what I started doing again. I just said, I don't know, that, that noise probably made no sense to you. <laughs> but that's how I processed it in my head. Is I, I just felt like, I, I was kind of like, what am I doing here? I think I'd inadvertently got back into, what's the minimum I can do? But I wanted to get to the places where I like, what can I do so Jesus gets more of my heart? And it's been one of the greatest ways to wake me up again. So we're, we're back to gross on all of it. It'd be the same thing. Like I know people in our church, they have like a car stipend or they have this. And, and like all of us, sincerely before the Lord, we just want to wrestle through it in a way that doesn't say, what's the bare minimum I can do so God gets off my back? It's what can I do so God gets more of my heart? David Carson kind of picks that up. He says this. The question is not what's the correct interpretation so I can do whatever is required and then get on with my life. The question should be how can I manage my affairs so I can give more to the Lord's work? And that's one of the things I actually love where there's ambiguity in the Bible is it, it pushes relationship. It pushes us to not simply check a box. It pushes us to say, God, before you, I, I, I want to honor you. I want to want to honor you. And and, and I want to know what that looks like. And, and we have a, a, a Savior who's alive and the tomb is empty. We have, a, we, have a, we have a God we can commune with and talk to and his living word to shape us and his body to engage with. And in that place, we get to start to wrestle through and sort out what does God want us to do? I don't need a command to tithe to give more than a tithe so that God would get more of my heart. That's where I landed. Where do you land? Alistair Beg. um, In a sermon on tithing, uh, I wanted to credit him. He brought this up, this kind of reference to St. Augustine. And what do you do when you don't have a clear command of exactly what you're supposed to do? This is Augustine's answer from a sermon on love out of 1 John 4. He says this, and and I, I came up, this was late, so there's no slides for this one. Here's his answer. What are you supposed to do when you don't have a clear command what to do? He says this, love God and do what you will. The longer quote is this, once for all then, a short precept is given to you. Love God and do what you will. Whether you hold your peace, through love hold your peace. Whether you cry out, through love cry out. Whether you correct, through love correct. Whether you spare, through love spare. And all things let the root of love be within. For of this root can nothing spring but what is good. That quote has been taken and kind of morphed. To say this, love God and do what you will. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Saying like, "Let's, what am I supposed to give? What's the minimum? What's like all of those pieces, they, they, they can somehow miss the point. And there are faithful Christians that have given tithes, 10% of their gross income, but their hearts are so far from God because they're just checking the box. And the, the point of all of this is that God would get more of us, not more of our wallets. Not more of our incomes. More of us. Love God. Let the love of God compel you. Let the love of the one who, who's come for you, let, let it stir your affections. That we may say, God, because I, 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 in that place, we're, we're in a spot like we don't want to offend the one who has loved us so well. Let me close this by pointing to two crucial things from Malachi 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children, are not consumed. He doesn't change, and he invites us to return. Wherever you're at, whatever you have or you haven't done, whatever your track record looks like in the area of giving, this is what you can bank on, regardless of what you've done with your bank account. God's never ending, never stopping, never giving up never failing, never exhausted commitment to you in Christ. Eric Ortland again, out of his commentary on Daniel, I love the way he picks up on, on this ever-flowing, heart-transforming, sin grace. He says, it's the only reason God's people have not been consumed in judgment is God's stubborn goodness and mercy, rooted in his very character. Remember, Malachi, this was the fifth of a six-fold wake-up call like I don't matter to you, church. That's what God was saying to Malachi. I'm not central. But because of his stubborn mercy and goodness, we are not consumed. How much more can we trust in the stubborn mercy and goodness of God when we take the the words of Malachi 3, but we put them in the shadow of the cross of Christ? Oh, his stubborn mercy and goodness to send his son to tithe everything. Everything to give up a throne in heaven, to come down into poverty, that we might partake of his riches, that he would do all of the obeying, that he tithed, he fulfilled every aspect of the law, not that, that, that we might follow his pattern to a T, but that we might partake in his righteousness, and out of that place is free, forgiven, loved, beloved, pursued, never let go, never cast out. We might say, what's it just look like to love him? with my time, with my abilities, with my money. And it's in that place, in the place of his death for us and his resurrection for us and his return for us, where his grace starts to melt our hearts, where we don't need condemnation because Jesus has already been judged, where we can handle appropriate guilt and conviction because our status with God is not in jeopardy. Can be honest where greed maybe has too tightly grasped us. Because we know the God who will never stop grasping us. And where we can truly be open to what God says is best and inspired to turn in that direction. Um, we don't need a command to, to tithe in order to do more than tithe so that God might get more of our hearts. And it's not to earn anything, but really in love and gratitude for the one who truly gave everything. Are Christians required to tithe? I don't know. We are required to love. Let's start there and see what flows downstream. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, its kindness, its challenge. And thank you that it always points us to Christ, who is our righteousness, who didn't hold back. God, thank you that you've made a world for us to enjoy and you want us to enjoy it without guilt. And you've given us an opportunity to respond that everything belongs to you by giving some of that back. It does so much practical good in the world, Father, through giving to kingdom purposes for sure. More than anything, it does something wonderful in us. So might you do more of that? At the end of the day, we just want to know what you want us to know and to do what you want us to do. Show us by the Spirit. Empower us in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.